from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. It's so great to be here with you today. It's gray and rainy outside. It's a classic November day here in Maple Grove, Minnesota. In fact, it's been raining on and off all morning, and you can smell the wet earth when you step outside. The kids were bundled up in their winter jackets because it's kind of cold and blustery as well. In fact, the forecast for this week calls for rain and even some snow over the next two days. But the weekend looks like we'll have some sun, so I don't think it's going to last for long. And there are still a few things that I need to get done outside, so I'm hoping we don't get anything that's significant. I have have a fantastic show for you today. Coming from Roseville, Minnesota, I had the opportunity to speak with Joel Karsten, who is the author, lecturer, and pioneer of straw bale gardening. In fact, his book is a New York Times bestseller. It's called Straw Bale Gardens. It's available on Amazon and at fine booksellers all over the country. And the subtitle for the book is called The Breakthrough Method for Growing Vegetables Anywhere, Earlier, and With No Weeding. And I might throw in that it's great. It's a great method for growing many types of plants, not just vegetables. So if this is a method of gardening that you've wanted to try and something that you're thinking about for next season, this is going to be a great show for you. Don't forget, you can review all the information covered in the show today in the show notes for this episode, which are located on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you'll find the Still Growing podcast in the top menu. Feel free to peruse all the episodes in the library. There have been many wonderful and talented folks who have spent time and shared their wisdom on the show. And if you like the show, there's a number of ways you can support Still Growing. I really appreciate your feedback and reviews, especially on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And you can become a fan of the show at facebook.com backslash stillgrowingwith6footmama. On my blog this week, the view from up here is shared in a post called Homecoming, and I'll read it for you now. Well, the past week has been a homecoming week for us. Phil finally came home from Harvard after two months of intense focus on over 200 case studies. And there's an old quote, if you educate a woman, you educate a family. And in this case, our family is very much enjoying and benefiting from the stories and lessons that Phil is sharing with us from his time at Harvard. As we discussed on Saturday night on our date night, he will be able to provide many insights and observations to the kids thanks to the valuable life-changing experience of his time at the AMP program program at Harvard. And it's also been a week of focusing on our kids and their education. Will and Emma have already finished their first quarter of school. And last night, we spent some time reviewing their report cards, celebrating, and then setting some goals for next quarter. And this week on my blog, I'll share how we goal set with the kids and why we think it's so important to help them plan for success in school. Because really, by the time they're in junior high, we need to keep them and we want to keep them focused on what the end goal is for school, and that is to have a job and participate in society in a way that's meaningful and makes them happy. 
Speaking of school, Will and I analyzed the poem Lucy Gray by William Wordsworth, and he'll share that at the end of the podcast today. And additionally, last week, the kids jazzed up their planners with duct tape. It's the latest thing, I guess. And I'll share some photos of that little craft session because they all got into it. And it's a great activity for all ages, from our second grader all the way up to our eighth grader. They really enjoyed it. So just a quick heads up, duct tape, I'm talking about the colorful, fun kinds they make these days are on the list for stocking stuffers this year. In the garden, I'm sharing my quick tips for a quick garden cleanup. So um, my hint right now is don't put your lawnmower away just yet, and I'll share why. Potting up paper whites and my outdoor must-dos before winter. It's the final list. In the kitchen this week, I write about my passion for preparing all kinds of squash, enough to last me until March. In fact, my friend Dale Ann is coming over this week, and we are doing what we call a squash off, where we are baking, I think, close to... 50 pounds of squash and preparing it, processing it, and getting it ready for all sorts of recipes that we can use throughout the winter. I also reveal my mom's homemade vegetable beef soup recipe this week, and I share my secret holiday helper, which is Trader Joe's pie crust. And if you've never used it, it's going to be a godsend to you this holiday. And I also share with you my latest cookbook treasure, because as many of you know, I love to collect cookbooks, and I found a fabulous cookbook from the early 1900s that I'm very excited to share with you. At Everest Lane House, I'm bringing back the kids' favorite table runner, which is butcher block paper. You can't get much more simple but they sure love it. And you set a bowl of crayons out or some markers or even some uh, paintbrushes and watercolors and they just go crazy with it. It's a great way to get everyone to the table and start to kind of just relax and get ready for spending time together at dinner time. I'll be revealing our half wall makeover. We have a little half wall, like a little partition divider in our front room where the kids study. And I wanted to make it more fun functional and more usable for our family. And so we did a little makeover and we'll be revealing that uh, this week on the blog. And then I'll share how caster fever has improved the functionality of my ottomans, storage bins, and more. It's a simple update that anybody can do um, to a lot of their home decor. In discovered quotes... There are three this week. The first is from Henry David Thoreau. I am grateful for what I am and have. My Thanksgiving is perpetual. It is surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. The next one is by Sarah Coleridge. Dull November brings the blast, then the leaves are whirling fast. And finally, by Emily Dickinson, November always seemed to me the Norway of the year. Now on to the show. As I mentioned earlier, in this week's Still Growing, we're talking about straw bale gardening as I interview New York Times best-selling author, Joel Karsten. In an era of low-maintenance gardens, this lifelong entrepreneur leveraged his farming roots to create the breakthrough method for growing plants anywhere, earlier, and with virtually no weeding. On top of that, he's a knowledgeable plantsman. I like to say he's about as humble as Wilbur from Charlotte's Web and incredibly generous with his time and wealth of horticultural wisdom. It's my first three-part show. Get ready for a fantastic time as we get to know and learn from Joel Karsten. 
Well, hey, Joel. So before we get going, we have a few connections that we can share with people because we're both from the same small town of Worthington, Minnesota, which is in southwestern Minnesota. And I recently discovered through my mom as I was preparing for our interview that your aunt and uncle introduced my parents to each other at a dance back in 1966 in the old Coliseum Ballroom. And I always knew that story of how my parents met. I guess I just didn't appreciate that the people who introduced them, Don and Liz Hatting, were your aunt and uncle. <laughs> I think probably half the marriages in, in that part of the country were all arranged at the Coliseum Ballroom in Worthington. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So tell me what your childhood was like, because I was growing up in the middle of town on Smith Avenue, and you were on a farm. Yep, indeed. That is, that is true. I was a farm boy. You know, I, I really enjoyed growing up on a farm. You know, it was it was definitely a lot of work. We had uh, dairy cows when I was younger, and we had transitioned over to beef cows as I got older. But we had swine and poultry, all kinds of chickens and ducks and geese and stuff all the time. Um, we had sheep, even for a short time, and a couple of horses, mainly that, you know, riding horses for my sisters. Um but yeah, even from when I was a little kid, I don't I don't ever remember a day growing up where I didn't have some kind of chores to do. So that's a little bit different, I think, than most of the most of the town kids' experience was. You know, they'd haul out the garbage and cut the grass, that kind of stuff. But uh, for a farm kid, it was a lot lot more involved. Way more work and chores for kids growing up on farms. There's no doubt about that. Now, you were the only boy in your family. You grew up in a, in a house full of sisters. How did that affect the division of labor for you on the farm? Pretty traditional gender roles when I was a kid. Uh, I was always with dad outside doing chores, doing the farm work, and the girls were usually in the house. Um, you know, my dad would drag them out to help with projects once in a while, but usually they did the you know, cooking and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't anything he, you know, he did to try to prevent them from doing farm work. He just assumed that the girls wouldn't want to do that. So. Sure. Well, aside from living with all those sisters, your grandma Josephine was also a huge influence on your life. In fact, I know you dedicate your book to her. You actually got to spend a great deal of your childhood spending time with her in the garden because she lived so close to you. Yeah, she had what we called Grandma's House, which is a little tiny house on the same home farmstead. Uh, we had the big farmhouse, and she had little Grandma's House. And right in between Grandma's House and the big farmhouse is where her garden was. So, you know, I, of course, spent I spent a lot of time in there as a young kid, um, you know, working with Grandma. She That was her profession, you know. She was a gardener. That's what she did um, until she was 92 years old. So uh, from the time she was very young until she until she was 92 she planted a garden every year and all the grandkids had to participate somewhat but i i seemed to get roped into helping her a lot so and i and i enjoyed it you know even as a little kid even 2 and 3 years old she was my daycare provider very often if my mom were up, was off to work my dad was busy in the in the field she would take care of us when we were little kids so i'm sure we were not very helpful in the garden when we were that young but you know, if you're around somebody who's a really good gardener, you just sort of learn things by osmosis. You know, if she, you'd ask her why, 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 and she would always say, you know, because that's just what works best. And, you know, that was kind of her way of, of teaching you was to put your hands in the soil and get you started pulling weeds and 
doing the other things. So I know in the dedication of your book, you say that your grandma Josephine had many favorite sayings, and one of them was to work smarter and not harder. She really was a practical person, but yet at the same time, she was very thoughtful and creative when it came to how she approached working in the garden. I think so. You know, a lot of the things she did were very, I guess you would call them unconventional. Um, she had a little patch of soil near her garden somewhere where she didn't want to have to pull weeds. She was famous for using a piece of upside down carpeting right on top of that area. Cover up the in between the row areas with upside down carpeting. That was like, I always tell people she was the first inventor of landscape fabric. Um, we just called it upside down carpeting because she loved that. She would, we would trawl the street in Worthington on junk day when all the city people would throw all their old rolls of carpeting away and we'd pick up any of the good rolls, big rolls that were jute back carpeting because you needed the jute back then the water could go through it, but the weeds couldn't grow back up through it. So it actually didn't look that bad. You know, you turn carpeting upside down, it's kind of a nice brown color on the back and kind of looks like a mulch or something in between your, your rows. And it worked really well. I mean, she was a smart woman. She didn't want to have to row to till and pull weeds all year in the areas where she wasn't going to grow plants. Well, so, uh, she would just put that put that down. It worked great. Or a thick layer of straw. We often use that too. You know, there are many people that have fallen in love with horticulture, spending time in the garden because they have these early memories and experiences of spending time in the garden with a grandparent. And your grandma Josephine was not only a dedicated gardener, in fact, you call her a professional gardener, but she was also a fabulous teacher. In fact, I love the part in the book uh, where you say, and I'm going to quote this, that she was in fact one of the best professors of horticulture that I would ever have. And I thought that was such a nice tribute to her. Um, and I also know from hearing some of these stories before that she was really a master at getting you involved in gardening uh, at an appropriate level from the time you were very, very young. Can you share some of those experiences with us? Oh, yeah, Grandma. There's all kinds of stories about Grandma Josephine. Um, you know, when, when I got old enough where she would let you take care of your own spot in the garden, she, she always started all the kids, even my little sisters when they were younger than me growing. The first thing you got to grow was a little patch of radishes on your own. And that's when you're really young, you, you don't really even know what radishes are, or what they taste like, but she let you grow your own and, you know, radishes ready to harvest in 30 or 45 days. And she'd go with you to your radish patch every day and make sure that there was no weeds. And she'd show you how to thin them out and, you know, explain why you needed to thin them out. And then, you know, kids have a short attention span. So 40 days later, when they're ready to harvest, you get to remember where you planted the seed and you pull the radish out and you wash it off under the faucet. And then you take a bite of it right out there in the garden. And it's a memory that stayed with me for sure. You know, you either love radish or you hate radish. And most of the time, little kids don't really know what to think until they take that first bite. And it really leaves an impact, that's for sure. So her method, you know, that was one of her methods was, you know, get the kids out there and let them do something and let them accomplish something. There's nothing that gets kids more excited about gardening than to actually accomplish something, you know, to plant something and, and be able to harvest something that you planted and took care of. And it just sparked my interest in gardening um, long term. And that was, I was probably three years old when I grew my first little patch all by myself. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, well, you know, she's just full of stories. She was a, uh, would spend all of her winters 
planning her garden for the next year. And, you know, she had her maps up on the wall from three years ago or four years ago and three and two and one year ago. And so that she could rotate crops and not overlap things. And she really made it into a science, um, how she did her crop rotation. Hmm. And then she would start looking through seed catalogs to get her seed orders placed. And she did keep a lot of seeds back of some of some plants, but she also did her big seed order once a year. And, and that was a big thing. You know, it was really important to her that she gets her order in first. So she made sure she got all the seeds that she ordered. And then already in February, she would start, um, start seeding and putting things under grow lights and her whole, she had what she called her front room. That was all full of, of it looked like a little greenhouse in there, all full mm. of seedlings coming up. So, wow. um, yeah, she was full of, of, you know, strange ideas and strange things. One of the things I remember that, that people often find interesting is the only thing we ever bought from the garden center was a flat or two flats every year of red impatience. Flowers. I love this story. Yep, this is and she would take these impatient flowers and she would plant one single impatient in between each block of vegetables she had out in the garden. And these red impatients, you know, impatients people think of as a shade plant, but impatients will grow in the sun as long as they have plenty of moisture. So what she used them for was really an indicator plant. So she could sit on her porch and sip her coffee in the morning just as the sun was coming up. She would look at those impatients and just by how wilted they were, or if they weren't wilted, she knew, okay, the soil there is fine, has plenty of water. The ones that were wilted, she knew that's where she had to go first with her garden hose to make sure that those plants got water. Because an impatient is really going to start to droop as soon as its shallow roots start to starve for water, that impatient is going to start tipping over. And then you'd get out, out there and water that area right away, and then that impatient would perk right back up. So she just used impatient, the same flower, on center as a little signal or a little indicator plant throughout her whole garden. And it worked great. It was something she thought of and did it on her own and, and I use that still today. I use a couple of impatient flowers in my strawberry garden just so I can look out and, and see what kind of shape they're in to see if maybe for some reason the silker hose didn't go off this morning. I think anyone listening can imagine what Grandma Josephine's garden looked like with those red impatience dispersed through each row. I love that story. And I also love the fact that she watered her garden by hand because she really was super attentive. And I think all that love and attention is what made her a successful gardener. You know, these days with sprinkler systems, you can basically turn on the sprinkler system after you're done putting your plants in and never walk through the garden. And so sometimes all this technology and innovation just separates the gardener from being in the garden. But by watering by hand, your grandmother was was just doing something, was just taking one more measure to make sure that she was staying close to her garden. She did. Yep. She loved to water things by hand. You know, when you use overhead sprinklers in a vegetable garden, that's a cultural no-no. And I know that because I've studied, you know, plant physiology and and pathology. And I know why having wet leaves on vegetable plants is damaging because it's a it makes a really nice host for any kind of fungus and things like that to grow and, and develop on the leaves, on those wet leaves. Yeah. But she did it because she just liked to walk her, her garden every morning and look for any problems, uh, any insects or disease problems. If she saw a leaf on a plant that today looked different than it did yesterday, she'd do a close inspection. And if it looked like it had some kind of disease, she'd snip it off and put it in her bread bag and get rid of it. And 
And, you know, she was just on top of any problems so that things didn't linger and get worse, you know, over a period of a week. All of a sudden you look out and one of your whole crops is gone. She, one of those potato bugs would dare come into her garden and she had it by the next morning and it was in the bread bag and in the garbage, you know, in the burn barrel. So it would get, we'd get rid of it. Yep. She had that good German work ethic, but you know, she also had some good, healthy boundaries around work and play and she made sure to get a break every day. Tell us about that part. Oh, yes. Every day we would go to the garden right at six in the morning, right when the sun was coming up in the summer, around six. And we would quit every day right at noon. And she always claimed it because it got too hot at noon, but it was really because she had to get in the house to watch her soap operas. (laughs) (laughs) And we kind of figured that out after a while that, hey, you know, it's not really too hot today, but we're quitting at noon anyway. And that's just what she liked to do. She liked to garden until noon and then she'd watch her soap operas. And sometimes she'd go do a little bit tinkering around in the afternoon as well in the garden. Not many people get to experience what it's like to grow up in the country. How has growing up on a farm helped you in life? I think there's lots of lessons you learn growing up on the farm, you know, about responsibility, you know, when when you have animals, livestock and things that are dependent upon you to be able to eat. And for bedding, you know, you have to make sure they have fresh bedding and, and that they're healthy and and, you know, they look to you, even as a nine, 10 year old kid, that was my job was to take care of that cow or that group of pigs or whatever. And, um, I think it just instills a lot of responsibility and, um, you know, hard work is obviously goes with it. You know, when you work on a farm, there's never an eight to five type of situation. You know, you, you go to work early in the morning and, and I would go to school during the day and come home from school and then have chores and help dad until, it was dark and, you know, you couldn't see to do anything outside anymore. Um, and that was really what the day was. It wasn't, you know, we quit when we get tired or we quit when the, when the, you know, when the sun goes down, basically we quit when we got done, when we finished work. So that kind of has carried over into my, my life now too. You know, I don't necessarily just work eight to five. I, you know, start early and very often work late. So. Now, did any of your siblings get into farming? No, none of the girls were interested in in farming. Amy became a, my oldest sister is a veterinarian, actually. So, and uh, my second sister is a uh, a nurse. She's actually a nurse administrator, and my youngest sister has a master's in in elementary ed. So I'm I'm the only one with without a advanced degree of all the children. I just have a bachelor's, bachelor's of science degree. Well, I think you've done all right for yourself. You went to my alma mater, the University of Minnesota, and you have a degree in horticulture. What were you like as a student? I guess, you know, I was a, I was a, I had a national merit scholar as a freshman, so I had to keep my grades up. Although my spring semester of my freshman year, I got my first ever. So I was a pretty good student, both in high school and in college. You know, when I got to the classes that were more focused on my major, I really excelled there and did well. Um, Some of the, you know, you have to do all the math sequence and the English lit and all that kind of stuff. You know, I I did good work, but I wasn't ever a top student in college, for sure, where there was a lot more competition. Um, But, you know, I was a pretty good student, I think. I you know, they, they thought it was good enough to let me through. So <laughs> now, did you know you wanted to be a horticulture major right out of the gate? I did. I knew actually, even as a sophomore, junior in high school, I remember going with my dad to the Arboretum 
University of Minnesota's uh, Arboretum and listening to a couple of horticulture professors talk about things. My dad was, uh, along with having a, a nursery, a dairy farm and a crop farm, he also started a little tree nursery as well. So he was propagating and growing, uh, you know, bushes essentially to sell to other farmers for windbreaks, uh, honeysuckles and willows and stuff like that. And we would go to these symposiums. It was like all day on a Saturday and a Sunday morning or something. It was up at, in, in the Twin Cities, up at the Arboretum. And I got to meet Dr. Bert Swanson at one of the first ones I went to. And he ended up years later when I was a freshman in college being my advisor and truly was a mentor for me all through college. He was my boss for my work study job. And really I got to know him and his family as well while I was at the U. But I first when I met him, you know, I just, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I knew I wanted to go to the University of Minnesota. So I, you know, I applied early, and I got accepted at the university, and I never applied at any other colleges. I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I just had my heart set on it, and, and it worked out. So there was never any equivocation what I was going to do or where I was going to go uh, to college. It just sort of, it was something I, I just knew, even even when I was young as a sophomore. For sure, by the time I was a junior in high school, I knew for sure. Now, you actually began your first business not long after you started college. Is that right? I did, yeah. As a, as a, when I got to college, my freshman year, I came home after my freshman year and I worked at the farm. And then I had a little, another job in, in town in Worthington that I did as well uh, to try to save money, et cetera, for college. And, you know, when you're busy working on the farm, it doesn't, it doesn't pay real well. <laughs> you, you work a lot, but it doesn't necessarily pay real well. Um, so my after my sophomore year, I decided to stay at the U and do uh, work study, which paid really well by the hour in the Twin Cities, and then um, also start doing some landscaping for some of my, basically it was my professors. Uh, the university has this really cool program where if you're a tenured professor, you can buy or, uh, lease, I guess, like 100-year lease on this property right near the St. Paul campus, and they call it University Grove. And it's all tenured professors in this eight-block by three-block area. And so I start working for one or two professors doing um, flower beds and things like that. And it's not very long before they're referring me to their friends. You know, you should get this farm kid. He works really hard. He knows what he's doing. So it just sort of evolved. And I spent most of my summer doing landscaping projects. And then I, I got smart after a while and talking with Dr. Swanson, my advisor, he said, you know, you should bid these jobs instead of working by the hour. He said, then you could get a helper or a couple of helpers, your friends, and you could do the jobs quicker and you could make more than just working by the hour. You know, you could mark up your, if you buy uh, plants and stuff, you could make some profit on those. And he kind of showed me how to do the bidding process and everything. And hmm. by the end of that summer, I had, you know, three or four uh, other kids, you know, college kids working for me doing these projects and had a nice little business going. So wow. that went, winter came along and of course then you can't landscape anymore. And then all these professors came to me and said, Hey, could you do snow removal for us? The only people we can hire are these guys that have these big plows and they wreck our grass and they, they're not real careful. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll buy a snowblower. So I went, actually I went and bought three or four snowblowers and I got these other guys to help me and by the time that winter was over, we had about 200 customers right in that area where Gosh. after it would snow, we'd go and use our snowblower and do a really nice job. So it was really clean and, and it didn't wreck the grass and uh, word spread. And, and so my business kind of grew from that. But. Wow. 
Um, yeah, it was it was great. And I did that for for several years through college, and then actually after I graduated from college for a couple of years, I did landscaping, and then in the winter I did snow removal. Now, many people obviously associate you with straw bale gardening from your book, the New York Times bestselling Straw Bale Gardens. And of course, you have your Facebook fan page. And so I know that many people are familiar with that side of you. However, I know that you have a very strong entrepreneurial side and that you have been involved in many creative business endeavors, really outside of the realm of horticulture. Now, did you know that about yourself growing up that you had this desire to be an entrepreneur, or did you become aware of it at a later age? Well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I look back now and I say, well, I got it all from my dad because, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur, still is an entrepreneur, has been his whole life, um, not only as a farmer, but he kind of branched out and he did other, you know, other types of occupations. When, when he saw an opportunity and he saw a need for somebody to fill that need, he would sort of start a business that filled that need. You get, you get into all kinds of different things. And that, I think, is what led me, um, you know, when I saw opportunities come along, I would pursue that opportunity. And, and, you know, sometimes I think, you know, maybe if I had stuck with just owning the landscaping business and had grown that over the years, but, you know, when, when another opportunity comes along and, and it's a good opportunity and, a, and a, something that, more of an adventure and, you know, kind of spread your wings and learn something new. That, that always excites me, learning something new and doing something different. So um, I, I guess I, when I look back, I see exactly why I am the way I am. Uh, they say you inherit things from your genetics or your parents, but um, I definitely get that from my dad for sure. So when you're having an aha moment, when an idea for a new business or innovation comes to you, are you aware that that is happening at that moment? Or do you have to kind of tend that idea and nurture it along before clarity comes to you and you have that vision of what is going to happen with that idea? I think... Early on, everything I've, every business I've started or adventure I've gotten into, I have some idea, obviously, that there's a demand and a need for it, but mainly I do it because I'm interested in it. And, you know, I, I think that there might be somebody else who's interested in it. And, you know, as you pursue the, the project or the business or the idea, um, things usually just kind of become clear. It, I'm not a, you know, if you read the, the business, guide to being a successful business person. They'll talk about writing business plans and how you're supposed to map everything out year by year. You know, I've written a few business plans, but usually within two weeks of when I've written the business plan, things have already changed and the business plan's kind of out the window. So I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to, you know, move quickly, take advantage of opportunities. And I think that's where some of the advantage comes from of being a small business person and having those kind of you know, opportunities to move quickly and, and take advantage. I, I have one really quick story that'll explain this perfectly for you. If you might remember many years ago when Jesse Ventura was elected governor. Yes, I vividly remember that. Okay. Um, at the time, I I had started my adventure products, which is our product distribution company. And he was elected on a Tuesday night. And by Wednesday morning at 1030 or 11 o'clock, I had already sent off a federal copyright for the phrase, our governor can beat up your governor. Oh, you're kidding. And 
and we had done all the artwork for it and we had bumper stickers and t-shirts designed and I ended up getting in the media you know, I got interviewed on all these TV programs and all these things and we had bumper stickers and t-shirts that we were selling to our existing customers but then to this entire new customer base and we got into every Happy Dan's and Total Gas Station and Oasis Gas Station in the state of Minnesota literally by the weekend Oh my gosh. Of that same week that he was elected, we had bumper stickers in all the stores and t-shirts in all these stores and basically captured this whole market that only lasted for about eight weeks, but it was a, it was an unbelievable opportunity. And it was just like an explosion, like a nuclear bomb that went off when we introduced this. Our governor could be up your governor, this little character with his, you know, an interpretation of what Jesse Ventura looked like. And I did it the smart way because I went to Jesse's office and I made sure everything was signed off on and that I wasn't going to get in trouble for using an image of Jesse Ventura. And, you know, I did all the paperwork and dotted my eyes and crossed my T's. And it was a huge success. You know, it lasted for a total of maybe three months or four months. And then sales dropped off very quickly after that. But that's just a really good example of how when you're a young entrepreneur and you don't know what you can't do, um, when something comes along, a great opportunity, you just grab it and you, and you go with it. Yes, and that's something that you've done over and over again with so many of your endeavors, whether we're talking about this import-export business experience that you gained right after college to this gyrokite helicopter. Um, you also have this adventure products distribution that that has grown into. So there's so many things that I think you've just done a marvelous job of recognizing an opportunity, but then also just going for it and kind of very fearless, but also um, very open, curious, um, kind of a seeker mentality um, and seeing where things go. And I don't know if some of that comes from the fact that, you know, when you grow up in a rural uh, small town situation, if you just know that, well, you know, regardless of how it turns out, you're a hard worker and, you know, there'll always be work. I don't know, you know, where that exactly comes from, but it's so interesting to me when I think about the different experiences that you've had and that it all kind of leads you to straw bale gardening, which which in and of itself was an opportunity that you had to seize um, in quick fashion. And I know we're going to get to that. But before we get into the, the straw bale garden story and how that's just kind of exploded for you, um, tell the listeners about these other industries and business opportunities that you have really kind of cut your teeth on, because I think all of that is important because because it's all leading up to what you're currently doing today. Well, I was after college, I ran my landscaping business for a couple of years, and I actually had a roommate that I was introduced to by another guy. And this roommate that I had happened to be from South Korea, and his father owned an import business where he imported these filtration systems for heavy industrial hydraulic equipment. And he was the importer from Japan into Korea. And he knew the guy in Japan was looking for somebody to import those filters into the United States and sell them to basically to manufacturers that used heavy industrial hydraulic um, applications. So I ended up partnering with the guy in Toronto And we started this business and we brought these filtration systems into the United States and we essentially were the distributor here in North America. And we grew that business. He and I, I I spent about two years traveling all over North America and visiting with all these manufacturing plants and their head person that was in charge of maintenance and explaining to them 
this filtration system and how it worked and why it would benefit them and et cetera. And uh, we, we grew the business very quickly and, you know, we had uh, buyers and, and users now all across Mexico and Canada and all over the United States. Um, and it was a really great opportunity. I did that for a couple of years and my partner from Toronto and I kind of wanted to take things in different directions. So what ended up happening is I sold my part of the business back to him uh, because another opportunity came along. And that this one was a, I was actually making a sales call for the, for the filtration system. Hmm. And I met this inventor in the lobby of this manufacturing facility. And he was there, <laughs> he was there to have a meeting with the owner of the manufacturing facility to try to convince this owner to buy into his idea, his product idea that he had uh, patented. And that guy wanted nothing to do with it, you know, and it turns out I met with the guy several times and, and he really was a cool, it was a toy product that he had created. Um, it's called the gyro kite. People may remember it from being on TV years ago. We also call it the uh, sky chopper in Europe. It's called the copter kite. So depending on where you're at on planet earth, it's called something different, but mm. I started um company and started manufacturing those. And I actually um, paid royalties to that in the inventor. I started that in 1993 and now here it is, you know, 20 something years later, we sold well over a million of them all over planet earth. And that product led me to start a distribution company that distributed other people's products as well. Um, one of the things I found out real early on as a young manufacturer is it's very difficult to do business with large retailers if you only have one thing to sell them. Because somebody like a Target or a Walmart does not want to buy from a vendor that only has one product. It's too expensive for them to do business. You know, they, it costs them a certain amount of money to write a purchase order and to issue a check and make payment and to service you as a vendor. So they want to buy from a distributor who has, you know, a hundred SKUs or a thousand SKUs that they can order at one time. So what we decided to do was find other small manufacturers that were like us that had one really good product or two really good products and form a distribution company that could offer a fuller, a, a longer list of products that people could buy. Hmm. Um, so we started adventure products with a partner and I started that in 94, 95 and um, added, we've added products to that line over the years, added products and dropped products and the company uh, still exists. It's still my main distribution company um, even today. So now we sell our main product line that we sell through, um, through Adventure Products is our, our display cases for autographed footballs, basketballs, baseballs, die-cast cars, uh, little clear uh, plastic, essentially, the polystyrene, water-clear polystyrene display cases. Well, it's kind of an evolution, you know, from one product to the next, but we still sell the little helicopter kites, too. We still sell a bunch of those every year, so... Well, I'm betting that I actually bought one of your display cases because our little PJ caught a baseball at a Twins game, their inaugural season. And of course, we have the baseball and we needed something to put it in. So I bet there's a good chance that we got the display case from your company and didn't even know it. What I wanted to um, to mention to you is that I think it is so misleading to think that these opportunities kind of just happened uh, to you because really there's an awful lot of hard work 
and thought that goes into each one of these endeavors. And even though, you know, they're kind of linked together, you're selling filters, you run into a gentleman in the lobby, next thing you know, you're selling these little helicopter gyrokite toys. Next thing you know, you're manufacturing um, the toy and then you are all of a sudden looking into um, developing a distribution company. I think people at first glance might look at that and say, oh, you know, these things all just happened. If you think about each each one of those experiences, preparation for the next step, um, then it's less about luck or good timing or just seizing opportunities. And it has more to do with being ready and being capable. And those things don't just happen. That takes years of work and years of learning and growing. And that's exactly what you did because these things didn't happen overnight. We're talking about a period of time that's spanning, you know, roughly 20 years. So I think that is the, you know, the glitter that attaches itself to being an entrepreneur is people think it's, it is the overnight sensation that, um, you know, the Jesse Ventura, my governor can beat up your governor experience. And yet so many of these other things take a lot of tending to and a lot of personal growth and development to really maximize that opportunity. You know, in my mind, I see all of these things that you've done from working on the farm to going to school for horticulture, starting your landscape business, getting into the filtration business, getting into the helicopter toy business, and then that leading to um, having your own distribution company. I see all of those things connecting together and kind of coming full circle by the time you end up with being an author of a book on straw bale gardening. Yeah, you know, I guess maybe it's, like I said earlier, it's not, not knowing what you can't do yes, <laughs> is part of it. Well, that and necessity, right? Because that leads us to the straw bale garden story, which really started with the purchase of your first home in Roseville, Minnesota, which is part of the Twin Cities. It's actually uh, part uh, suburb of St. Paul. Um, and your home is located near the state fairgrounds for anyone who's kind of familiar with the area. And really, long story short, the quality of the soil behind the home in Roseville is what really drove you to get creative around gardening options as a first-time homeowner and a young homeowner in a suburban environment, which is a common scenario for so many people even today. And that is really what started the method you now have pioneered and the rest of us know as straw bale gardening. Well, I, I sold my landscaping company a couple of years after I got out of college. So in like 93, and then that's when I started the manufacturing business. And at the same time, I bought a house. So I was young, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. And I bought this house in Roseville. Now, when you're a horticulture major and your moving band backs up to your house that you just bought, the first thing you do is whip open the door and you grab your shovel and you run to the backyard to dig a hole and see what kind of soil you just bought, because that's very important, especially when you're a farm kid, you come from an area of the, of the state where the soil is topsoil is four feet deep. Um, I was very disappointed to go to my backyard, this new house I just bought and find that I had about an inch and a half in topsoil that covered this construction soil underneath, 
was basically backfill clay and gravel um, that was not very conducive to growing much at all. Um, so I knew right when I first moved in that I was going to have to do something. Now, I, I, the other unfortunate thing is, is I didn't have a lot of money at that point in time um, to invest in, you know, soil modifications and bringing in black dirt and that kind of thing. So I remembered as a kid how sometimes when we were baling straw and a bale would break, we'd throw it up against the barn. And after six months of sitting up against the barn, it got snowed on and rained on and the snow would melt the next spring. And a couple of thistle seeds would fall on top of those straw bales. The big tall thistles on the farm were the ones growing out of that bale of straw. And so I knew there was something in that bale of straw, you know, as it was decomposing that those plants really liked. And remember seeing that, you know, even when I was a little kid. So I thought to myself, you know, I don't have any, any resources to bring in all kinds of soil and fix my problems, but what if I tried using bales of straw? And I would just use those as a real quick, almost like a compost pile, get the bales to compost and put my veggies in those, right in those bales. If it grows, if it grows thistles, why wouldn't it grow tomatoes, right? That's my thought. So I called for my old professors at the U and I told them my brilliant idea I'd come up with, you know, I want to use a bale of straw as a substrate. I want to plant vegetables right in this bale. And I don't think that'll work, they said. Um, you know, this reason and that reason, it's going to dry out and stuff will tip over and there's not enough nutrients and, you know, there'll be all kinds of problems. I don't think it'll work. And then they, one suggested, you know, you should call this guy, you know, down at Texas, at, uh, at Texas A&M. They're real progressive horticulturists down there and they might know something. So I call down there and the guy down there says, you should call this person over at Georgia Tech. He might know something. And I called Georgia Tech and they say, Penn State, they'll know everything about this. So we'll call Penn State. And when I called Penn State, they said, you should call the University of Minnesota. They'll probably give you a... <laughs> so I kind of went in this big circle and I never really discovered anything from academia that was going to be very helpful and not very encouraging information either. And after that, out of frustration, I called my dad one night and I was talking to him and I and I told him my brilliant idea and I said, but I don't, nobody thinks it'll work. And he said, well, you know, let's try it. What is it going to hurt to try it? and see if it might work. So he said, come to the farm next weekend. I'll get some straw bales and we'll try it. So I drove down to the farm the following weekend. This is in May. It'll be 20 years ago now. And when I drove on the farm, he had a whole hay rack full of straw bales. And we ended up planting 50 bales of straw um, and tried different things and um, to figure out what would work and what wouldn't work. And, and over... Uh, a period of a couple weeks, so a month or so, and the middle of June, we realized, hey, this process really works well. The wow. stuff coming out of the straw bales was twice as tall as the stuff we planted in the soil. And, you know, from there, I started taking some notes, and you know, I had no intention at the time of ever doing anything with it beyond, you know, just growing my own garden. And very shortly, people started to ask him questions, you know, how does this work, and how to, you know, what is he doing here, et cetera, and you know, and there was more and more interest. And eventually, about six years ago, um, Jeff Olson over at CARE 11, reporter at CARE 11, NBC affiliate here in Minneapolis, he somehow got a hold of this. I had written out a little step-by-step of how you do strawberry gardening that people were, my dad would give away to people and I would give to friends if they wanted to try it. And he got a hold of that and he said, boy, this is really interesting. I want to put this on the news. I want to do a story, a special story about it. So he aired this story and after that, it just, exploded. I mean, we started a Facebook page and now there's about just about 30,000 people on Facebook that are doing straw bale gardening or following at least the process of how you do straw bale gardening. 
And I wrote a little self-published booklet and we started offering that for sale on, on Facebook. And it just, again, one of those little nuclear explosions that just sort of took off. And, and now, um, we did a book this spring, the, the Strawbell Gardens book with, with Cool Springs Press. And, and it's just done phenomenally well beyond their expectations and, you know, far beyond my expectations for sure. Hmm. Tell us, um, tell us more about this—the very first straw bale garden that you set up at your dad's. Because um, one thing that I appreciate after all the conversations we've had is really the scientific approach that you took to uh, basically running trials in that first garden, and then refining that process over time to get to where you are today. Right. Well, we knew, you know, I knew some fundamental things having a degree in horticulture at that point, and I understand a little bit about plant physiology and, and, you know, soil science, having soil science classes and decomposition. And I kind of knew what I wanted to accomplish. And I knew one of the main things I was going to need to do was add a source of nitrogen to those bales in order to stimulate the bacteria to develop inside and, and basically quickly consume that straw and turn it into soil. Uh, so we started with 10 different plots and in each one of the plots we treated differently with a different source of nitrogen, um, different amounts of nitrogen, and then different amounts of water. So, you know, we could kind of get some feedback on what seemed to work best and et cetera. And uh you know, it wasn't the first year wasn't the prettiest looking. You know, I didn't really understand we at that point I wasn't doing the the trellises above the bales. So I wasn't getting the plants to climb up high. I was just using plain old tomato cages around my tomatoes and a few other things. But um, since then, every year, you know, we sort of look at what worked well and uh, what didn't work so well and refine it a little bit. And now we've kind of got the system down now where where it seems to work really well. Um, and, you know, a lot of those lessons came from the first couple of years of, of doing this. The first year I did it only at the farm. And after that, it's been, it's been here in Roseville. Yes, and it's important for people to understand that it is not just um, digging out the middle of the straw bale and shoving dirt inside, that you're actually right. transforming the bale. Right, that's a very common misnomer, Jen, so, so that's nice that you point that out. Very often people will email me and they'll say, so you just get a bale of straw and you dig the inside out and you put yeah. dirt in and you plant your plants in there. And I say, well, you could do that if you want to, but if you do that, you're not straw bale gardening. You're soil gardening on top of a bale of straw, and it's very different things. What we're doing is we're converting the straw, what today looks like a fresh bale of straw, in two weeks is going to have begun the process of decomposing, and we're going to create our own brand new virgin soil inside of that straw bale, out of the straw. You know, what is really good soil? Well, really good soil is, has a high percentage of decomposed organic material, of humus, the black stuff in the soil that has all the nutrients. That's decomposed organic material, yeah. something that was alive has died. And that's really what we're doing inside of this bale is we're converting that straw into brand new virgin soil. Now, that's really important because when you have brand new soil that you're working with inside that bale, you don't have any lingering disease problems any lingering insect issues, any lingering weed problems with weed seeds that get left in your topsoil year after year and accumulate. Um, so it really solves a lot of those problems that vegetable gardeners fight on a year-to-year -year basis by, by building your own brand new soil. 
I think that's the part that really excites people because once you understand that, you realize that it really diminishes the amount of labor that a garden can require, especially a vegetable garden. So I want to quickly address the fact that before you wrote this book, there was already a lot of demand in the work for more information about how you were going about this whole new method, this breakthrough method of gardening called Strawbale Gardening. And there was such a clamor in the Twin Cities and um, people who had seen the trials down on your family farm for more information that your wife had really encouraged you to put together a pamphlet to uh, a little handout to really help people um, understand what exactly your, your process was. And I think it's such a validation when you realize that people were curious and eager to to understand straw bale gardening almost immediately after being introduced to it, weren't they? Right. Yeah, it was a, it was a little self-published. We called it a booklet, pamphlet, whatever. About 75 pages. And it had some pictures and things that I had taken over the years. And and basically, it has the same, um, has the same basic recipe that we use for getting the bales into condition and has all this basic information um, in that booklet, but it, it you know it's not formatted and it doesn't have a glossary and things like a real book does, like uh, is produced by a publisher. Uh, so photography is not the same standard, and you know it's not laid out as nice, but it certainly served the purpose for several years, and we sold lots of them via Facebook and my website um, to people literally in every country on planet Earth. There's somebody that has ordered. Um, a copy of Strawbell Gardening, which was the first little booklet, um, and has been doing it for for years, for for several years. So, um, and I get introduced to those people more and more often by Facebook when they now, after a couple of years, have grown gardens and now they're starting to send pictures. Um, you know, I've been doing this now for three years. Here's a picture of my latest garden. It's, I just love this method of gardening, and all my neighbors are now interested, and they're all doing it. And you know, it's just sort of. I tell people it's not a book that you got to go out and convince people to buy because as soon as one person buys it and starts doing it, anybody within eyesight of that garden Mm -hmm. is going to have questions about how does that work? Well, that's really interesting. Tell me more about it. Well, how did you learn how to do this? And then they convince them that they should try it. And, you know, the best way to find information about it is you need to get this copy of this book and it just sort of sells itself. And when uh, Jeff Olson did that piece on Carol Evans six years ago, he called you, didn't yeah. he, like the day before and said, yeah, you better he prepare. Called the, <laughs> he called the night before and he said, you know, everybody around the studio as we're clipping this piece together has been asking questions about how they do this and where they can find more information. He said, do you have a website? And I said, I don't have a website, but I said, let me call you back. So I went on GoDaddy.com and I bought the URL address, strawbellgardens.com. And I called him right back and I said, well, it's, my URL is strawbellgardens.com. He said, but there's nothing there. I said, oh, there will be by tomorrow night when this thing gets on TV. There will be. So I stayed up and built a little website, and then we put a little link on there where people could click to order. Uh, for a few dollars, they could order a copy of the little booklet that we were producing. And very quickly, you know, hundreds of copies got sold overnight that first after it aired that first night. And that was sort of the spark that said, wow, you know, there's really a lot of interest in this. It's, it's pretty amazing how how many people are willing to pay me to find out this information. 
And that was sort of when I said, hey, I think this could be a bin. You know, mm-hmm. I think this could be something that people are really interested in. And I could, you know, I could profit off of people's interest and, you know, do speaking and things like that about this. So that was the first time really that that strawberry gardening to me really um, I looked at it as a business opportunity. Otherwise, it was always just something fun to do and, you know, kind of goofing around. And people's passion for it is really what is propelling this forward because I love you always say um, people kind of become teachers about strawberry gardening and then they become right. preachers because they're just so passionate about it. Right. As soon as you put bales in your backyard and you start growing tomatoes out of those bales, anybody who's interested in gardening that comes to your house to visit, any friends or relatives or neighbors, they're going to start asking questions. They're mm-hmm. going to say, what in the world are you doing with those straw bales? And then you're going to have to teach them. You're going to say, well, it's a vegetable garden, and you teach them the whole process. And then after you do it for a couple years, and you realize, wow, this really is easy, and it works really well, and then, you know all this labor savings, I don't have all these weeds to pull and, and whatnot, you really become an advocate for it. And you start talking to other people. Anytime you talk about gardening, you tell other people about it. Um, I have a really good story. My wife started a, a new job here a few months ago. And her first day at the job, she's sitting in her cube. And mm-hmm. she overhears a conversation two or three cubes away of two ladies talking about gardening. And one says to the other one, well, you know, I started strawberry gardening this spring. And I love it. It's the only way I'll ever garden from now on. And my wife goes around the corner and one of them had a copy of my book. And she said, um, you know, that's my husband's book. My husband wrote that book. And they're like, oh, you're kidding me. And they were like so excited. And I think that was kind of the first time she had ever ran into somebody who didn't know who she was that, you know, she was related to me. And she sort of got to hear a, a conversation between two people that wasn't, um, you know, that obviously didn't know who she was or that she had anything to do with strawberry gardening. And people come to me with those conversations all the time now, you know, ran into two people and they started talking about gardening and one of them just loves strawberry gardening. And I asked them if they knew who you were and they said, Oh yeah, I got your book. So it's, it's fun and interesting. And, and, you know, it's always nice to be, you know, to have somebody interested in what you're interested in and, and what you're passionate about. So, yes, absolutely. And fun. Know- you know, um, I love, I know one of your favorite garden books is uh, by Ruth Stout, the No Work Garden Book. But yes, uh, you really have, this method is really, truly the no work garden experience for folks because of the sterile well, environment. Right. You hate to say no work because there, I tell people, if you give yourself 50, uh, 30 seconds per bale per summer, hmm. you can take care of all your weeding. So if you have a 30 bale straw bale garden, you might spend 15 minutes the whole summer uh, doing your weeding at the very most 15 minutes because there's just no weed seeds. I mean, straw is sterile. The seeds have been removed. The wheat or oat seeds have been removed. That becomes Wheaties and, and oatmeal yep. and the stalks are sterile. So if there's no seeds in the bale, there's nothing that can sprout weeds. You know, you might get a few dandelions from your neighbor's yard when they go to bloom, that'll blow over and land on your thing and sprout a couple of dandelions, but nothing like you're going to have in traditional topsoil, which has accumulations of years, you know, Weed seeds can sit in topsoil for 10 or 15 years and be inert, never sprout. And then all of a sudden they get the right conditions and you get a year where, even like this year, where lots of weed seeds sprout and you just seem like you never end pulling weeds, just one after another. And even if you keep your whole garden completely clean of weeds, the next year it's all full of weeds again, Mm -hmm. uh, having nothing to do with you. You know, the weeds just come, they blow in, 
the birds fly over and deposit weed seeds for you. And when you use manure in your garden, you import weed seeds to your garden through the manure that you bring in. You know, there's all kinds of ways that seeds, weed seeds end up in people's gardens. Um, and we don't have that issue because we have brand new soil inside of that straw bale. So you're right. It is, it is much less work. But I hate to say no work because then people come back and say, well, I actually did have to do a little bit of work. Yes. So, um, it's very, um, it's very less time consuming. I, I tell people it'll knock about 75% of your time off of gardening to get the same output in terms of produce. So you'll spend 75% less time. And time is really your big investment when it comes to vegetable gardening. It's not your seeds. It's not your fertilizer. It's not your water. It's your time. Mm -hmm. That's where your big investment is when it comes to vegetable gardening. And most of your time in vegetable gardening is spent fighting those pests, fighting weeds, insects, disease, um, you know, battling those problems. So if you can eliminate those and automate your water system, like what I've done with a soaker hose and a hose-end timer, it couldn't be any easier. You know, the hose goes off every morning at 4 o'clock in the morning and and takes care of the watering, and that was the other part that took some time to, to do. So once you get your bales conditioned, it takes two weeks, and take you five minutes every day for two weeks, and then you plant, and then you harvest it. And that's really all there is to it. So there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of um, intensive weeding and caretaking that needs to be done. So I won't say no work, but a lot less work. That yeah. Better. You know, um, this method, I think, is so, on some levels, I remember the first time we talked about it, and I kept thinking, well, it's, I mean, it makes complete sense. And it's, there's a very intuitive part of what you're doing here with straw bale gardening and having it, you know, decompose and create this fabulous environment. And it's surprising to think that it, nobody came up with this, you know, before you, before you started doing that, um, back with your dad 20 years ago. But now, um, uh, as people are starting to adapt to it and, um, you know, that passion has spread around the world, literally, um, do you see yourself as a pioneer? Do you feel that you've successfully shaken up some of the traditional views on gardening? I, I definitely think, you know, that, and I can cite lots of examples of, of people around the world, but I definitely think it's a, it's a new way of looking at gardening for sure. And, and it's really impactful for those people who are already experienced gardeners. You know, sometimes when you talk to somebody who's been gardening for a long time, it's pretty hard to, to impress them, you know, to come up with anything new and different. They, they're going to think of it as a gimmick and, you know, I tried every gimmick and, but this is really different. I mean, even, the reporter from the New York Times that did the, I mean, he's a garden writer for the New York Times. Believe me, he's heard everything. People try to convince him that everything is new and different. And he was absolutely blown away when he came and, and saw my garden. And, you know, we walked around and, and he heard the stories from people and, and he called it the biggest revolution in a revolutionary in gardening. And I mean, someone doesn't use those kind of, just throw those words around when you're, writing for the New York Times, for sure. Um, And, you know, people in foreign countries, like, um, for example, I'm leaving here this next week to visit Paris, and there's a a garden now in in Paris, France, that is done all out of straw bales, and it was somebody who bought my original booklet uh, five or six years ago, and he started doing vegetable gardening, and he turns out now, I find out six years later, that he's a quite a notorious 
landscape architect in Paris, and he was chosen to do a whole garden, this concept that he presented out of all straw bales, an interpretation of a Monet painting in straw bales, essentially. Um, and the, the garden tour folks, I mean, they've been gardening for thousands and thousands of years in Europe, for sure. And this is like totally revolutionary to them. They're so amazed how well it works and, you know, how effective it is and how well things grow in this environment. And they're just getting all kinds of really great feedback. So, you know, it hasn't um, become as popular in other parts of the world as it is right here in the Midwest, in Minnesota and Wisconsin in particular, which yes. is, of course, because this is sort of ground zero of where everything started. But where it, where people are demonstrating it and people are showing up with gardens, it's, you know, word spreads very quickly in that environment. So. Well, and you've done a lot of grassroots marketing to get it to, to the point where you're, you know, you're writing this book and... And so it's not like it just, you know, it was instantaneous. But at the same point, um, I love how you did, um, and you still do, community ed classes to teach people how to do this. And my favorite story is the one you shared about um, going to Amory, Wisconsin every year. Can you tell us that story? I love that one. Yeah, Yeah, I've been teaching this community ed class over in Amory. It's a little tiny town over in Wisconsin. Uh, their community. And the first year I taught it, I think there was about six people that showed up for the class. And one of the six was this older woman, probably in her late seventies at that time. And I've gone back now, I think this was my fourth or fifth year. And the same woman has signed up for the class every year, mm-hmm. but now she doesn't come to learn how to straw garden. She just comes <laughs> so that she can bring all of her photo albums and brag about her garden to everybody else who one. comes. Oh my God. Yeah, she sets out all of her photo albums before class. She takes a whole table and she sets them all out. Everybody who comes in, she says, yeah, I took this class, you know, several years ago and look at my garden. These are pictures of my garden. So she's, everybody that walks into class is already sold on the concept. They just want to know the, the specifics of how to do it. Uh, so I spent a couple hours teaching them that, but, um, you know, I essentially I should start paying her to come and help me do promotion because <laughs> she does such a great job. And it's so fun to see somebody who, you know, is probably, you know, as a seasoned gardener, she's been, she's been doing this for a long time. She's probably to the stage in her life where if she had to do traditional gardening in the soil, she probably couldn't do it anymore because strawberry gardening is raised up off the ground and you don't have to have the shovel and the rake and the hole and all the hard labor that's involved. She gets her grandson or somebody to haul the bales to the backyard, and that's the hard work for the year. And, and after that, she you know she can plant and she can harvest on her own without having to have anybody around to help her out. So, um, you know, it's fun to see somebody accomplishing things like that that we probably wouldn't be able to do it if it weren't for, for strawberry gardening. Yeah, and there have been a few people like that that are just complete converts. I, I remember another lady you were telling me about in California, and it actually ended up bringing the neighborhood together. Yeah, yeah, she's uh, actually some of her pictures made it in my latest book. Sarah Redmond is her name. And she originally, when she started, she did this in her front yard. Now, this is in in uh, North Hollywood, California. So a very, you know, hoity-toity, very nice neighborhood in North Hollywood, California. And she put these bales up, great big giant straw bales, in her front yard in rows. And, of course, her neighbors would come along and, 
she said, I lived in this house for 15 years before I started Strava gardening. And for those 15 years, she said, I met one or two of my neighbors. I knew a couple of people by their first name. But she said, believe me, when I put these straw in the front yard, I now know everybody in my neighborhood. She said, because they would walk by and they would stop and they'd say, you know, what are you doing here? Are you bringing cows or pigs into your yard or what? And then she would explain, you know, this is going to be a garden. And throughout the summer, I mean, she grew this amazing garden. These 12 foot tall sunflowers growing out of the top of these straw bales. She grew all kinds of stuff, flowers along with vegetables, you know, things I probably wouldn't grow. You probably wouldn't grow, but she, having never grown anything, having never had a garden, some kind of a new experience. And she had a couple of little kids, so she wanted to grow some flowers and other things. And by the end of the summer, she had brought these neighbors together. They would come down at night to look at her, how much stuff had grown. And, you know, the little kids were impressed by these big, tall sunflowers and other things. And then she would introduce one couple that was there looking at the garden to another couple in the neighborhood. And, you know, they would chit chat back and forth. She said, by this spring, this is now the following spring when I'm talking to her. She said, now this spring, I have neighbors coming to me saying, Sarah, when are your bales coming for your straw bale garden? You know, that garden completely changed our neighborhood. That's a great it brought everybody together in this neighborhood. Yeah, what a compliment. You know, you can have all the community gardens and playgrounds and things, but something like that that somebody does on their own and sort of bucks the system. I mean, you put straw bales in your front yard, you should expect to take some flack from from neighbors and, you know, people like that. I asked her, did you have any problems with the city of North Hollywood coming to you and, and you know, the fact that you have these bales in your front yard in a, in a vegetable garden. And she said, well, I had enough flowers in it that I could pass it off as a flower garden. But she said, we did have a code inspector that came by and he's flipping through his code book and he's saying, you know, I'm pretty sure that you can't do this, but I can't find it in my code book exactly. And she said, well, listen here, mister, if Michelle Obama can have a vegetable garden in her backyard, then I can have one in my yard too. Oh, <laughs> so I don't want to talk to you. And yeah, she she fought for her uh, right to have a vegetable garden wherever she wanted. So not every community in the world can you do that, but I think you should be able to. You know, as long as it's kept neat and tidy and, you know, things don't get weedy and get out of hand, there's no reason people shouldn't be able to grow whatever they want, wherever they want on their own property. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. Um, before we, um, we're going to take a break now because, uh, we're at the hour mark for the show, but when we get back and we, uh, cause we'll be doing this show in, I think three segments, when we, um, start the next segment, we're going to be talking about the process that you've developed for conditioning the bales. And I just want to remind people that this is something that you have developed over time because you've really, um, kind of, uh, hit the sweet spot on what it takes for someone to condition a bale either the traditional way or organically so that they can be 100% organic. But do you want to just comment really quickly on the fact that um, there is a process and that following the process will lead to success for folks? Yes, it is important. I get I get emails all every spring. I get a, a variety of emails, obviously, with 30,000 people on Facebook. You can even imagine. Um, but sometimes I get emails and they'll come and they'll say, I tried straw bale gardening, Mr. Karsten. Last week, I bought a straw bale, and I planted three tomatoes in it, and now they're all dead. It doesn't work. And so then I email them back, and I say, well, tell me how you conditioned the straw bales before you planted in them. And they write me back, and they say, well, I don't know what conditioning means. And then I write them back, and I say, well, then you missed a fundamental component to straw bale gardening. You must, before you plant in the bales, you must condition the bales to get them ready before you can put plants in them. 
Um, and part of this has to do with the whole microbiology that's happening inside of that bale. It's a big science experiment inside that bale. There's microbes, there's bacteria in those bales. And bacteria are so small that we can't see them, but we can see the effects of the, what happens to these bacteria when we feed them during the conditioning process. And we do this essentially by adding nitrogen. We put nitrogen on the bales, and that encourages the bacteria to grow and colonize that bale. You know, bacteria only have two goals in life. One is to reproduce themselves, and the other one is to consume organic material. And we're going to feed them and water them and during the conditioning process, and then that's what happens. They, they colonize that bale, and they start to consume the bale, and they do the work that Mother Nature asked them to do, which is to decompose that organic material, make it into soil, make it into humus, essentially. That, that's basically broken down into molecules that include things like nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, molybdenum, zinc, iron, all the original components that it took to grow the stock of wheat or the stock of oats are now decomposed and become available for a new plant to absorb through their roots and, and grow something new. Um, so it really does take some time and, you know, you can use, people write me all the time and say, well, I use this and I use that. You know, you can use different sources of nitrogen. It's really important how much you use. That's, that's really key because you have to give that, those microbes enough nitrogen to feed them enough to get them to start decomposing. Um, and usually when people email me and they say they haven't been successful and I get right to the nuts and bolts of the process that they use. It's something that they tried on their own or they found they read somewhere that, you know, online from somebody who told them this is how to do it. And it usually comes down to the fact that they didn't use enough nitrogen to get the bales conditioned properly. Um, and, you know, I can usually tell that very quickly by looking at a picture of what their plants look like or when they tell me what they used and how much. And, and you know, very quickly it becomes apparent that, you know, you just didn't get the bales into condition. So try it again. You know, use those bales next year and they'll probably be ready to go. But for this season, you didn't get them conditioned well enough to, to produce a decent garden. Well, that's it for part one of my interview with Joel Karsten, the author of the fabulous book, Straw Bale Gardens. And I want to thank Joel for being my guest today. I also want to give you an idea of the things that we'll be covering in part two, which will air next week. We'll start by having Joel give us a primer on straw so that we can understand the medium that we're growing in. And then uh, we'll have Joel go over the advantages of straw bale gardening. We'll have Joel take us through the steps of conditioning bales properly. And then the other thing that he will do is discuss some of the best practices that he's developed over the years. It's a chance to really understand the benefits and the practices that will make for successful straw bale gardening next season. So it's an episode that you're not going to want to miss. I know for those of you who are excited to give it a try, it's going to be a very informative hour. In addition to thanking Joel for being the guest today, I want to thank you for joining us. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher and the BlackBerry podcast. You can also subscribe directly to the blog post to get them via email. Just to remind you again, I'll have all of the information from the show today at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And you can find this podcast in the top menu under the Still Growing Podcast. You can always find me at sixfootmama.com or on facebook.com backslash stillgrowingwithsixfootmama. 
You can also email me directly at jennifer at sixfootmama.com. Feel free to send in your questions for the Master Gardener Roundtable, which airs every other month on Still Growing. Your question will be answered either via email or during the podcast. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is an hour-long weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Okay, so for today's after show, I'm featuring some poetry and a little bit of music. First up is John, and I've gotten to spend a little bit of extra time with him uh, this week, over the weekend and uh, into the beginning part of this week. He's had a little bit of the flu, and so we've been spending some time together on his iPad, and one of the things that he enjoys is playing the piano on his iPad, and so we were kind of going through some of the songs that he's been learning and the song Simple Gifts, the the old Shaker song came up. And so we spend some time working on that this week and then um, discussing the, the song and singing the lyrics. So it's been a little bit of an earworm around our house singing Simple Gifts, but it's something that he wanted to share at the end of the show today. And then he also has, I think, a bonus song for us. Once he's done, Emma will be reading the lyrics for Simple Gifts. And then Will will wrap things up by reading a poem that he studied in school this past week. And the poem is called Lucy Gray. So I'm here with my son, John. Do you want to say hi? Hi. How old are you, John? Seven. And you have a birthday coming up, right? Yeah. When's your birthday? December 16th. December 16th. And do you play any instruments, John? Yes. What do you play? The piano. And how do you play the piano, John? On the iPad or the real piano. That's right. But you mostly play on the iPad, don't you? Yes. And this week you learned a song... And you wanted to share it with everyone, didn't you? Yes. And what's the name of the song? Simple Gifts. Simple Gifts. Are you going to play it for us now? Sure. I'll try my best.
the best I could do it. Thank you, John. That was really nice. Okay, Emma is now with us, and she is going to tell us about Simple Gifts, the song that John just played for us. And uh, she's reading about Simple Gifts off of Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia. Emma, tell us about Simple Gifts. Simple Gifts is a shaker song written and composed in 1848 by Elder Joseph Brackett. It has endured many inaccurate descriptions, though often classified as an anonymous shaker hymn or as a work song, it is better classified as a dance song. Simple Gifts was written by Elder Joseph while he was at the shaker community in Alfred, Maine. These are the lyrics to his one-verse song. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning we come round right. Two additional, later, non-shaker verses exist for the song. I will do one of them. Tis the gift to be loved and that love to return. Tis the gift to be taught and a richer gift to learn. And when we expect of others what we try to live each day, then we'll all live together and we'll all learn to say, Tis the gift to have friends and a true friend to be. Tis the gift to think of others, not to only think of me. And when we hear what others really think and really feel, then we'll all live together with a love that is real. Tis the gift to be loving, tis the best gift of all. Like a quiet rain, it blesses where it falls. And with it, we will truly believe, tis better to give than it is to receive. Tis the gift to have friends and a true friend to be. Tis the gift to think of others, not to only think of me. And when we hear what others really think and really feel, then we'll all live together with a love that is real. Okay, and now Will um, is going to read a poem that he studied in school. Will, uh, you're in eighth grade, right? Yeah. Okay, what is the name of the poem? The name of the poem is Lucy Gray or Solitude by Williams Wordsworth. By William Wordsworth. And why did William, or when did William write the poem? In 1799. And what was the inspiration for the poem? He was inspired by Sister Dorothy's memory about an incident in Halifax about a girl that was found dead in the canal after a snowy blizzard the other night. Okay, and can you read the poem for us? Yes, I can. Oft I had heard of Lucy Gray, and when I crossed the wild, I chanced to see a break of day, the solitary child. No mate, no comrade, Lucy knew. She dwelt on a wide moor, the sweetest thing that ever grew beside a human door. You yet may spy the fawn at play, the hare upon the green, but the sweet face of Lucy Gray will never more be seen. Tonight will be a stormy night. You to the town must go and take a lantern, child, to light your mother through the snow. 
That father I will gladly do. Tis scarcely afternoon. The minster clock had just struck two, and yonder is the moon. At this the father raised his hook and snapped a faggot band. He plied his work, and Lucy took the lantern in her hand. Not blithers the mountain row, with many a wanton stroke. Her feet dispierce the powdery snow that rises up like smoke. The storm came on before its time. She wandered up and down, and many a hill did Lucy climb, but never reached the town. The wretched parents all that night were shouting far and wide, but there was neither sound nor sight to serve them for a guide. At daybreak on a hill they stood that overlooked the moor, and thence they saw the bridge of wood a furlong from their door. They wept and, turning homeward, cried, In heaven we all shall meet. When in the snow the mother spied the print of Lucy's feet. Then downwards from the steep hill's edge they tracked the footmarks small, and through the broken hawthorn hedge and by the long stone wall. And then an open field they crossed, the marks were still the same. They tracked them on, nor ever lost, into the bridge they came. They followed from the snowy bank those footmarks one by one, into the middle of the plank, and further there were none. Yet some maintain that to this day she is a living child, that you may see sweet Lucy Gray upon the lonesome wild. Or, rough and smooth, she trips along, and never looks behind, and sings a solitary song that whistles in the wind. Thanks for reading that, Will. You're welcome. Now I have to go do my English homework. Good. Miss Owen will like that. I know, she will, but she doesn't listen to the podcast. And we'll close today with John, who surprised me when I asked him what his favorite song was, because I thought it was going to be Moves Like Jagger by Maroon 5, and he said something that I totally did not expect. Sometimes all the technology that kids play with these days can get all lumped into that same category of being, you know, too much addictive and a complete waste of time. But I have to say I was very tickled with his interest in and familiarity with the song that he shared with me. What's your favorite song to play? Um, I think it is this one. I can't pronounce it. You like Prelude Number 1 in C Major? Yeah. Okay. I got three stars in easy, medium, and hard. Do you want to play that one for us? Sure, I'll play on easy. Easy is the best. This one's pretty long.
Thank you, John. That is long. That is a long song, isn't it? All right. Night-night.